Noise Elation. Greetings yet again, my crampon-clad colleagues. I hope you didn't take them off. We're going to need them today as we're pushing to the summit of Mount Everest and then taking on the most challenging part, right? Getting back down. It's like flying, right? Taking off is optional, but landing, well, that's mandatory. Part two of our conversation was swashbuckling. Now, there's a word you don't hear every day. Climber and adventurer Greg Paul, the only known summiteer to have pulled off this feat with not one, but two bilateral knee replacements. A lot of big reveals today. What implant company got the bragging rights? What about that trash pile on the summit? What about Crack Hour's book? Into Thin Air. Answers to this and a whole lot more are forthcoming. You're going to want to hang around for this one. Just an amazing story to share today. One thing that's certainly not forthcoming, it's right here, right now. Our summit series. What's that, Kevin? As device reps, as orthopedic surgeons, what can we learn from Greg Paul's experience as we look to take on the mountains in our lives? The challenges we face each and every day that represent an obstacle, a challenge to be overcome, to reach an ultimate goal. Last week, we talked about step one, where it all begins. The idea, essentially a choice we all have to make of whether or not we want to do something. Sounds like this. I want to climb Mount Everest, right? It starts there. Or I want to climb Mount Device Rep, Mount Quota, Mount Marriage. I had a mountain in front of me this past week. Quite honestly, I didn't really want to climb at all called Mount Grief. If I seem a little melancholy today, I so apologize. My family lost an animal that was truly a gift from God, Daisy, our beloved yellow lab, a rescue from a really bad situation when she was just a little furball 14 years ago, finally reached the end. And it was just devastating for me and my entire family. Now, part of me, if I'm honest, wanted to just avoid Mount Grief. And this job is unique in that if you want to avoid a mountain, you can. You can just work all the time and hope it goes away and in the process avoiding things that you probably shouldn't. But my wife came through with some wisdom that Daisy deserved more than that. She deserved more than just moving on with our lives as if it never happened just because dealing with it made us feel so bad. To Shay. So I took the counsel. It was the right choice. It honored the memory of this amazing creature. It was very therapeutic, and we are doing much better now, thankfully. And it all started with a choice. And guess what? Not making a choice is still... Well, a choice. I didn't come up with that. It's off of a great Rush song entitled Free Will. I love the line, you may choose not to decide, but you still have made a choice. So climbing any mountain, it starts right there. And I cannot mention Rush without thinking of Neil Peart between him and Steve Porcaro from Toto, the two greatest drummers of all time. A close third is an RN in training I knew. This guy was on a tight leash for a while and basically just observed what the attending RN was doing. And then they started giving him circulator lunch break relief duties, and that's when the fun really started. I kid you not, the moment the attending left the room, this guy started an epic air drum solo sitting in front of the computer in the room playing an imaginary drum kit, just flailing away over the entire hour. And I'm telling you, this guy was working it. Not some straight up four on the floor groove. We're talking 40 piece freestyle jazz moves that literally had him covered in sweat, which would always lead the attending to think that he had actually done something over the course of that lunch break. Weren't they surprised to discover? Well, no, 
Nothing got done like at all. Nothing got put in the computer. Just him honing his imaginary skills. Now, I'm sure at some point this guy had the idea. He made that choice. I want to be an RN. But clearly that idea wore off somewhere along the line, leaving him with essentially just one reason to get up and go to work every day. Syncopation. What really should have come next for him was something I saw the other day that was just so profound to me. I hope it inspires you as much as it has me. Here it goes. If you hold a belief, you think a thought. If you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Now, look, I know how hard that had to be to follow in the car. So here's the quick start version. Belief leads to thought which leads to action, which leads to habit, which produces character that ultimately affects your destiny, a summit, so to speak. Isn't that good? Believe it or not, after we've made a choice to climb, our destiny, our ability to summit any mountain starts with this unassuming seven-letter word, believe. Now, what does that word even mean? We've heard it our whole lives. A belief is a subjective attitude that a proposition is true or a state of affairs is the case. So as we look to the challenges and obstacles in front of us. What propositions are we holding as true that could represent the keys to our success or conversely present, well, even more challenges and obstacles? Just believing something isn't enough. I love this awesome quote by Dr. Marianne DiOrio. Stay true to what you believe, but make sure that what you believe is true. That is awesome. Journey has this iconic song entitled Don't Stop Believing, which sounds good, but if you're believing the wrong thing, then it should be don't start believing, right? So what are we believing about ourselves and or the task at hand? And of those beliefs, which are ones that we need to feed and which ones do we need to starve? Well, forget feeding and starving for a minute. Somebody who was all about drinking back in the 30s, W.C. Fields. He was America's favorite drunk at the time. Had a bunch of great quotes. Here's a couple of them. Now, don't say you can't swear off drinking. It's easy. I've done it a thousand times, or I cook with wine. Sometimes I even add it to the food, and probably his most famous line, everybody has to believe in something. I believe I'll have another beer. Well, device reps and surgeons can easily fall into a slightly different iteration of this quote. Everybody has to believe in something. I believe that something will be a negative, whether it's what we believe about ourselves or the task in front of us. There is a gravitational pull to the negative. So given what I read earlier, if a positive belief at the outset can ultimately affect our destiny, we have to assume that a negative one can as well. And guess what? We're wired for the latter, not the former. It's Science and psychologists call it a negativity bias. Our rep, our surgeon brains have a natural tendency to give weight to and remember negative experiences or interactions much more than positive ones. They stand out more. I learned this early in my career as a starving rep going out on a credit card limb to take my kids to Disney. The symbol for Disney, by the way, should be Mickey Mouse holding a parent upside down by the foot as the sole purpose of that park for time and memoriam is to shake every last nickel out of the pockets of said parents. But I digress. We recovered from the financial front sometime later and about that same time realized that the only thing my daughter remembered from all those card swipes was the fact that she didn't get to go on the teacup ride. Well, now we know 
It's science. We can so easily do this to ourselves, can't we? We have something bad happen to us, things that went sideways, little T, big T trauma. I remember a surgeon telling me, what you do today, it's determined by your last disaster. And a result of that, unfortunately, is beliefs get tainted with negative, and that gets baked into who we are and our perception of the task in front of us. Look, climbing any mountain is hard. It literally becomes impossible and or miserable to you and everyone around you. If right out of the gate, you believe you can't do it because such and such happened five, 10 years ago that you don't have what it takes. Same goes for the task, right? If that mountain, that territory, that surgeon, that GPO, that surgery just seems like such an insurmountable task and you believe that, well, guess what? Now it is. These are the beliefs we need to starve. Well, what about the ones that we need to feed? Do we have anyone speaking anything positive into our lives? We all need an emotional support rep at some point. People that believe in us and that are feeding us some positive to counteract our negativity bias. So what do you really believe about you? What do you believe about your job. What do you believe about the mountains in front of you? Are they attainable? Are they hopeless? This, my friends, is where I want to land today because to answer these questions, it's going to demand some outside help. Well, we've all heard the time-honored phrase, seeing is believing. I'd like to take a little literary license here and tweak it. Believing makes for extreme difficulty in seeing. Why? These beliefs about ourselves that start with I can or I can't or I'm not or I am are really woven into the fabric of who we are at any given time. And since we're so close to that person... It can be really hard, if not impossible, to see what it is we're believing. What we're left with is symptoms, what people would observe as simply our behavior. I knew a rep once whose behavior was just antisocial, and most interactions with him would have such a negative bent to them as he was extremely guarded. That behavior was coming from a belief that people were not safe, some real trust issues going on there. And I feel confident that there was something that happened to him that wrote that belief on him. He could not see it. So to that end, we need need a hand-picked team of fellow climbers to help us on this subject. We're going to go into that more next episode as they can help us spot the beliefs that need to be encouraged, the things we need to feed, the very things that will help us in our summit attempts, but also help us identify the things we need to starve, any negativity biases or beliefs that left unchecked will keep us off the mountain or worse yet, just circling it. So what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about what's in front of you right now? I saw a blur the other day that the movie Groundhog Day came out 30 years ago. Can you believe that? Doesn't it just feel like yesterday? <laughs> so while you're pondering these legitimate questions and that solid dad joke, I believe it's time to go for the summit with Greg Paul. At midnight, the Sherpa come out of the tents and they have the metal bowls and they start hitting them with spoons and wakes everybody up. We were to leave at one o'clock. My five teammates were much more at getting ready and getting out of their tent than I was. They left at about 1.15. I wasn't ready to leave until 1.30 a.m. I had snow on the bottom of my boots that I couldn't dislodge to get my crampons on. So I was the last one out of base camp, and there were approximately 40 other people ahead of me, which was quite disconcerting to me and really took away a lot of my confidence that morning seeing all these headlamps way up on the mountain. That's all I could see was a stream of headlamps almost vertically above me, well ahead of me. Luckily, my Sherpa, no one Tenzing, my guide, got me going, and we gradually caught up to the group. And then by 4.30 in the morning, the sun starts to rise. We get to the balcony. 
the slope of the mountain relaxes for a little while. And I passed all but 17 people at this point, And I was feeling really good. Everything was go in my system. You're kind of, you know, checking everything from your cold to- toes to your fingers to your oxygen working and check, check, check. It was all good. Start heading up. I start passing more people. Then at 530, I'm looking below me and I can see these dark clouds and literally lightning below me. And above me, there's dark clouds coming in. And by 545, we were in an all out gale of snow, ice, 35, 40 mile an hour winds. You couldn't see much more than 20 feet in front of you. We're on a steep slope. People were stopping, sitting down, not moving. We all have radios on. You can hear all the chatter of Sherpa talking in a language you can't understand. And you can tell there's definitely some concern. And people are going, what should we do? Some folks start turning around. But the key that I've learned in mountaineering is when you stop moving, you start dying. You've got to keep that blood flowing in your system. And by moving and continuing on, it keeps the blood circulating, keeps your feet and your hands warm. The Sherpa that I was with, no one knew that. He knew my ability and our risk limits. And we kept going. We kept passing people. About 20 minutes below the south summit, which is around 28,800 feet, not much lower than the summit of Mount Everest, my Jumar or my ascender stopped working. We were attached to a rope, you know, the safety line that goes literally from camp one all the way to the summit. I could not take my Jumar off the rope in order to switch it to the next rope. It was frozen and we worked on it for 15 minutes and finally no one said, forget it don't use it. (laughs) And we were about to what's called the Cornus Ridge, which is about a thousand feet, not much elevation gain, but it's a razor edge ridge, which drops 11,000 feet down into Tibet on one side, your right. And on your left side, it drops about 10,000 feet down to Nepal. And you're literally on a one foot to two foot wide razor edge for a thousand feet until you get to the Hillary step. And I don't have a Jumar that works. So I'm just basically attached to this rope with my hand and a carabiner holding on tight. But before we actually started across the Cornish Ridge, we paused at the South Summit. And our expedition leader, Russell Bryce, was talking to our Western guide who was also there at the South Summit with us. We've passed all the other climbers. There's only five of us at that point. And Russell starts talking about turning around. The conditions were too dangerous and my heart just dropped (laughs) and I'm like, oh no, I mean, I wanted to go so bad. I knew that my wife had told me three times a charm, three strikes, you're out. (laughs) I knew if we didn't, if I didn't do it this time, I'm not going to get to the top of Everest. I looked at no one and he looked at me and I go, we got to go. And no one says, we go. And he looked at our guide and he says, we go. And the guide looked at him and said, go ahead. And he radioed Russell Bryce and said, we're going to go for it. And that whole 10 seconds of us saying we are going to go changed the whole momentum of the decision to let us go. And onward, we went across the Cornish Ridge, probably the most dramatic thousand feet of mountaineering you could imagine. And then we get to the Hillary Step, which had changed apparently because of the earthquake the prior year. There was so much snow that I really couldn't tell what change there was, but apparently some of the rocks fell off of it. Regardless, it was a steep 40-foot ice and snow face that we went up. And what's 
that's so cool about it is that I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm on the Hillary face, which any anybody that knows anything about Everest, that's just such a landmark. It's such a privilege to be on it. And I'm going up it and I'm wondering, am I going to make this? Am I going to survive? I'm in the middle of a storm. And we get up the Hillary step, then it eases off again, and you can't see anything. The snow that you're on in the sky, it's indistinguishable. I was just in a white room, and we're following a rope. And all of a sudden, the rope ends, and no one says, the summit is up there. Well, the rope didn't go all the way to the summit. And we had detached from that, and the, just start walking 200, 300 feet. And suddenly, we're on this little bump about the size of a top of a garbage can. And in the middle of a storm, I can't see a darn thing. We're there. And I'm like, I can't believe it. We're here. We're on top of the world. We were the first people to summit that day. We passed everybody. And it was very windy. So we both sat down and there was no summit picture. It was too windy and crazy up there. I didn't even take anything out that I had, mementos and pictures. The zipper on my summit suit was frozen. I couldn't undo it. I pull out my radio. We're supposed to call in to space camp when we get there to let them know we're there. And I call Russell and I go, Russell, I'm on top of the world. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so you were the last guy out, but you're now the first one on top. That had to have been so exciting. You're heading down. Everyone on the team is behind you at this point. What happened next? I started heading down and I looked behind me expecting no one to be with me and he wasn't following me. And I'd stopped and I kind of put my hands up in the air and go, what's going on? And he goes, I must stay in case we have a rescue. The winds had gotten even worse up there and people were not coming down as fast as they should. There were problems up above me and I wasn't fully aware of what was going on up there, but I was told to go down. So I started going down. I ended up on the low sea face entirely alone, nobody else on the mountain. I couldn't understand it because usually there's people going up and down. I had the entire low sea face to myself, and it was the most exhilarating feeling I've ever had. It took me about three hours to go down, and I was literally skipping is the wrong word, but that's kind of how I felt. Very confident. The weather by the time I got on the low sea face was sunny and pleasant. All my strength was there, all my vigor. I was totally amped that I had made it and I was going down and I was there by myself. I couldn't make a mistake. And I got back to camp too and about four o'clock in the afternoon, immediately flopped down in my tent and I could have died at that point and been very happy. <laughs> it was just like such a relief. It was like, what is better than what just happened? And it couldn't have worked out any better, making it to the top in the raging blizzard and surviving and coming down and having that whole mountain to myself, which my expedition leader said is like a totally unique experience to be had. Well, you got to go back now because you got mementos that you have to put back on the summit. <laughs> Speaking no, of, thank you. I was thinking about that. You got 600 people summiting a year and leaving mementos. That has to add up. I believe there's no self-storage at altitude yet. So where does all that stuff go? Well, there's about a 15-foot mound of stuff up there, prayer flags and whatever people decide to leave up there as a memento. The little bump that we were on, and I didn't realize this at the time, was the top of that pile because a storm had come in and dumped two feet of snow. So our summit 
was actually 15 feet higher than normal. And by the time the rest of my teammates started coming up, the wind had blown quite a bit of that snow off of that little bump so that it would be very tactful and almost impossible to climb on top of all those mementos and flags when they're not covered by snow. I thought about this after I got back down and I asked my expedition leader, Russell Bryce, I go, I was on top of all this stuff standing. Does that mean I might have been the highest person ever on earth? And he thought about it and he goes, well, I can't exactly like give you a certificate (laughs) for that, but but there's a pretty good chance. I read a statistic that 80% of the deaths on Mount Everest happen on the way down. And I was thinking, and it's a crazy thought, why not just pull out a parasail at the summit and just fly back down? Is that completely nuts? (laughs) It's been done and done by two Sherpa. Apparently one of the Sherpa almost froze to death on the way down. I think he couldn't get his oxygen mask on, forgot to put it on or something on the way down and couldn't do it on the way down. But there's quite a story about that. They went from the top of Everest all the way to the ocean by parasail and by other means. But I'm not sure if it's been done more than that one time. Why is it so dangerous coming back down? I think a lot of people, because of their hubris and ego, push themselves beyond their physical limits to get to the top of Everest. There's people that climb Everest that probably shouldn't be there, and they have enough support with the Sherpas and what have you to get them up to the death zone. And then they have too much ego and too much vested in getting to the summit that they push themselves to the point where their physical tank is empty when they get to the top. They use up everything to get to the top, and they don't have anything left to get down. In fact, Russell Bryce, after he expressed his amazement that I (laughs) had made it, he goes, Greg, you're only halfway there. (laughs) And getting back to base camp and home is the real end of the journey. And when you're in a depleted state and that adrenaline that gets you to the top goes away and you've been exposed to the death zone for as many hours as you are, your your body is physically breaking down. And that's basically what happens to 80% of the folks that die. They just sit down and, and they know that falling asleep is going to be the end, but their mind and their body doesn't have enough left to do anything else. Well, speaking of falling asleep and the end, we read a lot about that in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, chronicling what happened there in 1996. If there's any better nonfiction writer, reporter on Earth, I don't know him. It really brought Mount Everest into the subconscious of many Americans. And I was just curious, any thoughts on the book, Crack Hour, anything that happened there? It brought Everest into the limelight. It was such an intriguing, captivating story of a struggle and of survival. Like you said earlier, it got some people who enjoy putting themselves in risky situations. It was a great advertisement for Everest in a strange way. In 1996, the whole commercial side of climbing Everest was just getting underway, meaning people actually paying other people to help them get up as opposed to private expeditions made up of expert climbers that come together to climb. Now the door was open to people that weren't experts, that weren't professionals to go climb mountains like Everest. And that all added up. And you had expedition companies that were trying to make a name for themselves so they could get business. They could get these clients to pay to come climb with them. And putting people on the summit was how you advertised your percentage success rate was important. And that's what got you clients. So there was a pressure on these expedition leaders to get as many clients to the top of the world. And 
risks were taken and rules were violated, like turnaround by 11 o'clock and a storm is coming, you better get off the mountain. All those rules somehow were violated because people were driven for one reason or another to get to the top. Then all hell broke loose. And a lot of people didn't make it down. What an amazing story. Everybody needs to read that book at least once in their life. And if you know, if we stop this interview right here, just an incredible story in its own right, Greg. But this isn't the whole story. You made metal and plastic history ascending and descending Mount Everest with not a uni, not a single knee replacement, but bilateral knee replacement. So let's go back for a moment. Start that journey when did you sense something was going sideways in your knees? Let's say a lot of skiing a little too aggressively as a teenager and even as an adult, given my own kids kind of pushed me longer and harder than they should have. My knees were pretty trashed given all the skiing that I did. I did a lot of jumping and skiing through difficult terrain. But by the time I was mid-50s, I remember going on a hike, an easy hike with my scout troop and my wife had to come and pick me up on an easy downhill portion of the hike because one knee was hurting so bad. And then I was not too many months later, I went and climbed a, something called Devil's Tower in Wyoming, which is a, a rock climb. And I successfully climbed Devil's Tower, but I was walking back to the car on a paved tourist trail at the bottom of the mountain. And I pretty much had to be by my teammates because my knee was hurting so bad. Within a week of that time, I called my doctor, Mark Mariani, who was recommended to me as one of the better orthopedic surgeons in Utah. And his calendar keeper said, there's nothing open till October. And I go, oh, darn. Two days after that call, they called me back and they go, there's an opening on Monday. And this was Friday. I'm like, whoa, I really wasn't expecting this. Well, anyway, on Monday, I go in and I had my right knee replaced. And that was 2008. So I did attempt Everest the first time in 2012 with one artificial knee. And coming down through the ice fall, I noticed my left knee was quite painful coming down and it slowed me up. And being slow in the ice fall is not a good thing. You want to get through that as quick as possible. And I knew if I wanted to come back and complete Everest, I probably would need another new knee. So I came home from Everest in 2012. And in November of that year, I got my left knee replaced. And I went back in September of 2013 to climb what's called Ama de Blom, which is a very technical mountain over in Nepal. And that was to test out my knees and to make sure they were up for a Nevers climb in 2014. So that is the story of when and why I had my knees replaced. And they finally got the full workout in 2016. And I was not only the first commercial climber to get to the top of Everest in 2016, I, I was the first and only person to do it with two artificial needs. We got to give a shout out to Ortho Development there in Utah. They have to be very proud that it was their implants that summited with you. They should be subsidizing all your extreme adventures. <laughs> well, I do owe it to them because they did sponsor me for a number of my trips to Everest. And I owe it to all those employees because after the disaster in 2014, which they sponsored, and I wasn't able to summit in 2014 because 
after the 16 Sherpa were killed, all teams were taken off the mountain and nobody summited that year. Ortho had invested a lot in me to go over there and not have a successful climb. Well, all those employees were behind me. And when I wanted to go back in 2016, they put pressure on the executives there that sponsored me again because they were so proud that they had a part in my adventure and they wanted to see me get to the top because they all were very proud of what I was trying to do. And it was such a good feeling to be able to succeed for them and my family, all those behind me. Greg, you never told us what those mementos were that were stuck in that frozen jacket. Uh, I got to ask, did the CEO of ODEV, Brent Bartholomew, did he give you a surgical technique (laughs) to put there on the summit? (laughs) (laughs) No, but he gave me a flag with ortho development on it. And uh, yes, two, two flags, actually. One of the the Japanese firm that is involved with ortho development because Japanese are big fans of Everest climbing. The Japanese are more enamored in the whole high altitude climbing than even Americans. So they were very happy to have me go to the top. And yeah, I had the ortho flag. I had a picture of my family and none of those came out because <laughs> I didn't want to take any any chances. But I did take other pictures on Lobachet and other areas with with those. So they got their fair shot on top of some big mountains. Well, congratulations on such an incredible feat. As you look back, any bullet point moments jump out at you, things you learned about yourself through the whole experience, things that really wrote something on your life? I do a lot of presentations for youth group, adult groups, for businesses, and a lot of themes can fall out of climbing in general and, and what I did over there. But I found out about myself that when I put my mind to it, I can do hard things and persevere disappointment. I found out that you can be disappointed, yet joyful, happy, and currently. Mountain climbing is mostly failure. A lot of mountains that I've climbed, I didn't get to the top of because of weather, because of nature being against you. And that failure and that disappointment doesn't have to diminish the joy and the happiness of the journey. In fact, it enhances it because once you do succeed, that joy is magnified by the fact that there was failures and you learn from those. That's a takeaway. I think one of the most memorable experiences I had was coming off of the low sea face after I summited, after that journey by myself down this huge part of the mountain. And as I'm walking along, one of the cameramen from the Discovery Channel was embedded in our expedition in 2016 because they were doing a series called Everest Rescue. And it was about the helicopter pilots who are flying around the Himalayas and rescuing climbers that have been hurt or sick. And these guys were embedded in our team. And so they were hiking with us, the base camp. They were with us as we were climbing. And One of them, Joe French from Scotland, we became good friends. They kind of followed me around because I was, at the time, 61 with artificial knees, and I was the oldest by a long shot on my team. And I think given it was called Everest Rescue, they probably thought I was going to be one of the first to be rescued. So (laughs) they were following me, and I was getting a lot of screen time, and I got to know Joe really well. And Joe was able to go all the way up to camp, too, but uh, they didn't have a permit. For him to summit and as i was coming off the mountain he had hiked about an hour out of camp too and was sitting on some rocks and i came down and he was the first person i met 
after summiting. And I came upon him and he's waiting for me because he knew I was coming down through all the radio communication. And we both looked at each other, started crying. Wow. Um, he was so happy for me. He was like living vicariously through that day because all of it is on radio, all the storm, all the stuff going on up there. And there was some pretty crazy stuff going on that day up on the mountain. So just to meet him and that feeling of, I just like unloaded on him all my joy and all my emotions. And he was like living it with me. And it was just, I remember that more than the summit. <laughs> And we're still good friends to this day. And he's written a book about his life as a mountaineer and a professional photographer in the Himalayans mountains. And, and he has a chapter about me in there. So I can't wait for his book to come out in September. So <laughs> that was very memorable. Well, speaking of living vicariously through others, I've enjoyed doing just that with you. So many amazing photos you put together on Facebook of not only your Himalayan experience, but a lot of other exciting things you've been doing. How do people find you? Email, which is gregclimbing at gmail.com. And then Facebook, I guess you friend me. That's how you found me on Facebook, right? There you go. And then I got to friend you back. I'm like 68 years old. This stuff is still not naturally to me. Greg, you defined adventure on Facebook as a risky undertaking of unknown outcome. Hopefully this interview wasn't that for you. I am so thankful you came on to share your life of adventure with us, sir. Well done. Well, I appreciate this opportunity. and I'm, I'm glad that you're reaching out in this way to the community of doctors and those involved in total knee replacement. I've enjoyed being kind of the poster boy for what you can do with your life when you thought that maybe you weren't able to do all the things that you once did and what happens when you do decide to get your knees replaced and be able to enjoy everything that you did before. And I've had numerous people call me from around the country who have connected through Facebook or what have you, and asked me about my experiences with artificial knees. And I know many of those who proceeded to go forward and get artificial knees and have had great success with it. And any doctor out there or anybody out there that needs me to share that experience going through what I've done, I'm always available. I feel that's the privilege and responsibility I have for what Ortho's given me kind of be a representative of your industry in this capacity. Greg, you really inspired me. We talked to a lot of doctors on this show. I feel like I need to get an ice doctor on this show because you've got me obsessed with that ice fault. The ice doctors, one, they have the most dangerous job on earth. And two, they're the rock stars of Everest. They're specially selected Sherpa who volunteer to keep the rope and ladders between base camp and camp two in operating order so that the climbers like me can safely get through that ice fall. And they're up at three o'clock every morning, making sure that the ladders are in place because every day a ladder is either crushed or drops into a crevasse and they've got to go and make sure we can get through there. It's crazy. By the time we are going into the ice fall, they're coming out and having completed their work. And many people don't even realize that they exist because they don't see them do their work. In fact, first time I went, I didn't know what an ice fall doctor was. But by the time I summited, they're the people that I appreciated the most in the Kumbu ice fall. Well, send us out, Greg. With some thoughts on your Sherpa, we've been hearing that word throughout this entire conversation. You have a pretty special one. Tell us about it. Well, one, I've grown conscientious of saying my Sherpa. Sherpa is actually an ethnic group. They migrated from 
Tibet into the mountainous regions of Nepal. Sherpa is also considered by many as a job, or when you say a Sherpa, you think of somebody who carries large loads in the mountains, but they're actually an ethnic group. And believe it or not, it's a last name. It's like Smith. When you're over there, the Sherpa guide that was assigned to me in 2012, who I climbed with now six times in Nepal, his name is Nugawan Tenzing Sherpa. Sherpa is his last name. Also, they use the days of the week. If you're born on a Monday, you're given a certain name. So there's like seven names that go around, and it's really confusing. You'll go into a town, and there's numerous Tenzing Sherpa, and there's Tenzing Sherpa one, two, three, and four. I don't know how they keep track of them and who's who. In fact, I have a T-shirt of all the Everest summiteers from one of the towns I went through, and there's probably about 10 different names on there, but there's 50 people represented and they have to put numbers after them. No one fellow I got to know, he's climbed Everest now seven times. He started when he was 17. He's now married. He has a child. His parents' house was destroyed in the earthquake in 2014. And one of the most special experiences I had was getting my family and friends to come together and we raised the funds to rebuild his parents' house and we raised the funds for no one to build his first home that he now lives in. And there's just a special connection. He's working on a photography career to be a professional mountaineer photographer. He also started a trekking company and I had some friends go with him this last fall. I'm doing all that because I really fear for his life on Everest. It's just a matter of time. You go through the Cougar Icefall, and it's just a probability game. At some point, <laughs> something can happen. So I'm trying to enable him to have a career in photography or trekking so that he can earn an income to support his family. And he doesn't have to do that by climbing a dangerous mountain like Everest. Anybody that goes over to Nepal, being able to experience a relationship with that Sherpa culture, that's a very special element of that whole experience. Well, it's been an amazing experience talking to you today, sir, and just hearing about your incredible life, inspirational stuff. And again, thank you so much for coming on to share it with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Whenever I'm given an opportunity to talk about Everest, I kind of start to relive it. and I get into this stream of consciousness where everything around me in a room goes away and I'm seeing pictures of Everest. And if I went a little too in-depth or off track, I apologize. But that's what happens when you start to relive an experience like that. And what an experience that was. Wow, what a story. What an accomplishment to do something like that with bilateral knee replacements. I can't imagine doing it with a robotic exoskeleton doing all 44,250 steps for me. Greg, Paul, and Ortho Development. Well, they've really got something to be proud of there. Some great lines in the conversation. Took a lot of notes. If you stop moving, you start dying. You could do a sales seminar on just that, couldn't you? Speaking of sales seminars, I really want to tidy up what we talked about earlier because what I don't want is us to walk away with some power of positive thinking mantra because it's not that at all. Whether you're a team lead, distributor, CEO, spouse, parent, whatever, what we're typically observing in behaviors good and bad from those around us and honestly what people are observing in us are symptoms of a belief. The bad behaviors are near impossible to address if the underlying belief hasn't been identified, much less dealt with. Again, real challenge there. 
But it's like arthritis. When you're bone on bone treating symptoms, well, it's temporal at best. We need to address the source. We're going to crack open that can next episode. We're going to talk about commonly held beliefs that will help you in your summit attempts and the ones we need to get rid of that are holding us back, keeping us off the mountain. Part and parcel of that is our team, our Sherpas. Wasn't that so interesting, by the way? Ten people in the room with the same name, just a different number behind it. Great stuff. Thank you again. Greg Paul for sharing this incredible adventure with us. And thank you, Device Nation. Such an honor to climb alongside the best of the best. Hope you have a wonderful week and so look forward to seeing you next time.